Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. As we reflect on the many portraits of the Christian life that we see throughout the scriptures, what does it mean to be a person of God? What, does, what, you know, what do we know about God? What are the things that we could bank on? What are the things we could get excited about? What are the scripture passages perhaps we've memorized? You know, there are some that come to mind, right? Uh, you know, certainly passages such as, For God so loves the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Things like that. Wonderful promises. God is love. And other such things that we read about in Scripture, and they give us hope, and they give us inspiration. In fact, these are the passages we see most often in our devotionals, and in other, in our, in our bookmarks, and other inspiring Christian literature that we read. These are the things we're often reminded about. But the thing is, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, prepared his church for the mission that would last until he came back. And it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows. It wasn't always happy things. It wasn't always wonderful promises. A lot of it was also warnings and preparations so that we would not be caught off guard as even times of hardship came upon us as we sought to do his will and be used of him to advance the gospel and to build his kingdom. I want to read to you some of the passages that we're probably all familiar with, but it's not the ones we like to meditate on before bed. They're not the ones that give us that happy boost to start our day with our morning cup of coffee. And yet, they are resounding in the sense that this is not one obscure passage, but over and over and over we see such as this. So here's just a few. This is John 16, verse 33. Jesus is speaking. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. Your peace is in him, but everything going on on the outside will be trouble. John 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Luke 12, 4 through 5. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, he's warning his disciples before he goes to his death because there's going to be times when literally and to stand for Christ means their life will end. But don't fear those who could kill your body, but that's it. They can't take away your hope. They can't take away your inheritance. They can't take away your eternal life. So fear, respect, honor God, who has authority over all things, including eternity. Matthew 10, 16 through 22. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's not a happy thought. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. 
On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Again, that's, that's not a happy picture. These are all words of Jesus. Let's fast forward to the end for just a moment. This is Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of those, those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I know what some of you are thinking. Why on earth did we go to church today? I heard it was a happier message last week. Or I could look ahead and ask. I think next week will be a happy sermon. Why didn't I look ahead and come? Why did I come today? These are not happy thoughts. Why are we talking about them? Because I didn't read you one obscure passage. I read you many. I didn't even read you all of the ones that touched on these themes. So that the New Testament, which, mind you, is only a very small percentage of the entirety of the Bible, if the New Testament alone has all of these and more warnings about difficult times to come for Christians, perhaps we'd better pay attention. Perhaps they're there for a reason. Perhaps Jesus himself thought it was important that we think about such things in preparation for difficult times that would come. And these warnings, they paint a vivid picture. But if we're being honest, it's a picture that doesn't necessarily line up with what we understand of being a Christian. Has this been your life thus far? Let's be honest. Has this been your life thus far, that life is just full of persecution and trouble and hardships because of your faith in Jesus? No. Uh, mine hasn't either, right? Now, that's not to say that Christians around the world haven't struggled in these ways. That's not to say that Christians throughout the last 2,000 years haven't struggled in these ways. And that is certainly not to say that even you and I in our generation will not face these kinds of difficulties, maybe even in the near future. See, because it's dangerous, the fact that we have lived in such a uh, such a peaceful context for Christians for so long that warnings such as these tend to fall on deaf ears because they're contrary to what we have had as our lived experience so far. I think of it like this. I had a single mother who, you know, at times was smothering of me and my brother, and she would do everything she could to keep us from any bit of harm. I mean, anything. I couldn't even, Craig, I'm sorry, man. I wasn't allowed to play football in middle school and high school because my mom was afraid I'd get hurt. I couldn't go hunting with my uncle. Why? Because what if you get shot? I mean, my mom was paranoid. I love her. And she loved me to death. But she went so far as to keep me from things in order to protect me. But is that ultimately protecting? 
When you protect your kids from everything in the whole wide world, are you preparing them for life that is dangerous? Are you preparing them for other things in the real world? My mother also liked to keep things fair. You know, if my brother got this, I got that. If my brother got two of those, I got two of those. That's my mother wanted to make sure everything was balanced. Until my father shared with her, you realize life isn't fair and you're not preparing your kids for the reality of living in this world. Now, I have none of that to pick on my mom because as I'm a father now, I have same tendencies. I have to keep myself in check. Jenny has to keep me in check. But there's dangers to keeping our kids from everything because it's not preparing them for reality. And I think that because of the freedoms we've long enjoyed in this country, uh, because in many ways, the culture and Christianity, their values were many times overlapping. Not always. You need, you need only watch TV or know your neighbor, you know, to realize that not everybody is, you know, living the same morality as we are. But for most of our lives, there seemed to be a whole lot more that was similar than different until perhaps just recently. And so the truth is, because this has been our reality for so long, we're not prepared for the harsher realities that I do believe are coming, whether they be in the near future or at the end of times or somewhere in between. Harsher realities are coming. And Jesus has warned us about them, and history has demonstrated them over and over and over again in various countries at various times, this trouble that Jesus talked about against the Christians. So perhaps seemingly more relevant is that this disconnect causes some cognitive dissonance for us now. Why do I say that? Because times are a-changing, as Bob Dylan says, uh, for us right now, right? We're, we're encountering instances of, of, of great evil, and we have to somehow reconcile the way in which we've perceived Christianity with what we see happening in our world right now, especially as it pertains to this persecution of Christians. For instance, and this is the short list, because I've bummed you out enough already, but we've had church shootings in the United States, even recently, in recent weeks. We're all still very aware of those images of Christians being beheaded by Islamic extremists in the past few years. We know personally of missionaries who have had hardships, had to leave their mission field because other missionaries have been kidnapped or killed. And as we watch the great divergence of Christianity and culture in our country, we all feel the tensions rise further and further. Tensions that realistically can lead to persecution as Christians more and more are viewed of those that are against progress, those who are against people enjoying who they are, and all these other things that go along with what culture is talking about us right now. So on the one hand, we have this culturally formed picture of a peaceful Christianity, largely accepted by society, where, where, where persecution is largely a foreign concept, and then we have the reality that's being threatened and the facts of persecution and martyrdom around the globe smacking us in the face and questions begin to rise. Have you asked these questions? Why God? Where's God in all of this? Couldn't this have been avoided? 
I mean, couldn't God have intervened and stopped this? Is there a greater good in this suffering? Or is it all meaningless? And there's many other questions that, if we're being honest, we've all either wrestled with or shoved down, but they seem to want to rear their head. And I'm of the, uh, I'm of the opinion that we don't need to push them down. We ought not to push them down. We need to ask questions. As I pastor in such times, I get asked this question more often than I ever imagined I'd be asked it, and I've mentioned this before, so you're probably prepared for it. I get asked this question all the time. Kevin, are we living in the end times? Why do you think I get asked that question, are we living in the end times? Because we are very aware that things are changing and changing fast, and they're worse in many ways than they ever have been uh, in our lives. So are we living in the end times? Well, here's the thing. The, the times that we're living in are really not much different than many other times and many other places that have, that have been in the last 2,000 years. It's different for us. It's not necessarily different for history. In fact, there have been worse wars. There have been worse pandemics. There have been worse persecution of Christians. And yes, there have been worse societal morality than we have in our country right now. Worse. In fact, even in the Roman Empire, in the time of Jesus and his apostles, things were much, much worse. And so, no, I don't think we're living in the end times. The problem is that our view of the Christian life has been largely shaped by the times in which we have lived and so we've forgotten Jesus' many warnings of the trouble that will face the church in the times leading up to his second coming. And so today, I'm going to be a little anachronistic, and for those of you who are not familiar with that term, here's what I mean by that. I'm going to probably read some of our current questions and our current struggles and our current views of the world into the text that we're reading from, and, I don't, and I'll point that out why we're doing that. I don't know that I'm doing that. Some of the questions that we're going to ask today as we read this passage may very well have been the same questions that they asked in that day. However, reading from our vantage point, this passage that we're about to look at is going to raise those kinds of questions for us. And so we're, we, while we are going to understand the passage in its context, I want to also make sure that our questions are being answered. And we're going to take a look at several questions today. Um, but first, let's read our passage. I've been talking so long, you forgot I had a passage, right? All right, if you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Acts chapter 12. And it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and start for the sake of time. And while you're flipping there, you can follow along on the screen in the interim. But here's what Acts 12, starting in verse 1, says. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. 
Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued and spread, to spread and flourish. That's a crazy passage and a long passage. Um, and a lot is going on there, and there's a lot of things I could have focused on as we look here. I do want to give, draw attention to a couple different things for the purpose of context. Uh, first, our passage begins and ends with an antagonist, Herod. And so just so you have some context, because as you read through the New Testament, there are several Herods, right? Uh, Herod the Great, for instance, is the, the king of all of the uh, nation of Israel, of uh, the north, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and even regions beyond at Jesus' birth. He's the crazy man who had all the babies in Bethlehem under a certain age killed. He died shortly after Jesus' birth. And at the, later on in Jesus' story, when he comes to his public ministry, there's another Herod, Herod Antipas. This is the one who had John the Baptist killed. This is the one who Jesus was sent to by Pilate uh, during his trial. Uh, and so there's another Herod. This Herod is the grandson of that first Herod, Herod the Great, and he controls a kingdom almost as large as his grandfather, Herod the Great. And so he is now in an interesting position because there's some tension that has been going on between the Jews and the Romans. 
A Roman emperor wanted to put a big statue of himself in Jerusalem, and the Jews weren't having it. The emperor was going to kill all the Jews in Jerusalem, and a big war was about to ensue, but then that emperor died. And now the new emperor took place, and he wanted to maintain the status quo. And here's this Herod, Herod Agrippa, King Herod, and he's trying to keep the peace. And what does he do? He murders one of the apostles, James, this brother of John, the apostle. And the Jewish religious leaders get excited. This is one of those leaders of that movement that's been a nuisance to us, and you killed him. And they are cheering for Herod, and Herod thinks, ah, this is how I get the Jews under my control. This is how I make them happy with my reign. This is how they fall in line. I will continue to persecute the Christians. So who's, who are the top dogs among the church? And they have Peter arrested. And so we see all of this at play as we begin here. And so by persecuting the Christians, uh, Herod was keeping uh, the Jewish people happy. And so what do we see happening even in the earliest years? Jesus' warnings beginning to come true for the church. Trouble, hardship, persecution. And so this passage raises questions that are still often asked by God's people today. Questions that have to do with the persistence of evil in our world. Evil even against God's holy people and God's plans. And so I want to examine some of these questions today because I believe that these are questions that we do have as well. So here's the first question I want to ask today. Why do bad things happen to God's people? I'm going to say that again. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Now, you know, there's been books written, why do bad things happen to good people? But that's a, that, that's a little bit misleading because there are no good people, Right? Everybody is sinful. Everybody has done wrong. Everybody has fallen short of God's standard. But here, we're talking about why do bad things happen to God's people? If we're on God's team, if he's redeemed us, if we're on mission for him, if we're doing his will, why on earth would bad things be allowed to happen to us? Now, I want to just revisit four verses in our passage today, verses 1 through 4. It says, about, it was about this time that Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that, when he, when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Bad things happening to God's people. Now there's a sense in which bad things happen to everybody, right, in this world. Evil is a universal phenomenon. Evil is something all of humanity deals with, right? We all deal with the people misusing the free will that God has given them, doing harm to other people. We, we deal in a world that's been broken by sin. And so there's a sense in which all of us suffer, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, just the reality of this world before Jesus comes back to restore all things, there's going to be evil, there's going to be pain, and there's going to be suffering. That's just the reality. And that's why we look forward to Jesus setting all things right. But why do bad things happen particularly to Christians? As we even see here, even to apostles at the earliest times in the church. 
And again, Jesus warned that such things would happen, right? But why are they happening? And I read one passage that speaks to this earlier, John 15, verses 18 through 19. It says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Have you experienced this recently? Doesn't it seem like the whole world is getting on board with this push in a direction that seems so foreign to us, so outside of the realm of biblical morality that we're just, we're struggling to understand it. It has never felt like us versus the world, perhaps more than it does right now. And so we're seeing perhaps vividly what Jesus is talking about right now. If you were part of the world, if you were one of their own, they'd love you just like everybody else. But because I've selected you out of the world, there's now this tension. They hate you just as they hated Jesus himself because we deal with the reality of two kingdoms. We deal with the reality of the kingdom of this world, which the Bible describes as being ruled, controlled by Satan. And then there's the kingdom of God, which Jesus made possible by his death and resurrection. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're being saved out of the kingdom of this world and we're becoming citizens of the kingdom of God. But here's the thing, we're also commissioned to go back into the kingdom of this world, to dwell here, to rescue other people out from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. But these two kingdoms are not the same, and these two kingdoms are at war. And so we have this world that is, that, that where people serve themselves, and are under the dominion of Satan, and we have the kingdom of God with citizens that are serving God and living in ways that please him. And so again, the church's mission is to rescue people from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. This is a war, and a war is bloody, and more than just the human faces, we tend to do this. We tend to look at a fellow human being and see them as the enemy. But that's not what the scriptures paint the picture of here. Because there are spiritual forces that are opposed to God that are at work in this world. And so Paul reminds us in the epistles that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against those dominions and powers of darkness that stand against God and his church and his agenda. And so we need to love people and serve God and trust that God is winning the war. But as we engage in this, as we set ourselves apart from the world, there is going to be conflict and trouble. Here's a common misconception I think Christians have that, that why this becomes an issue. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Because our misconception is this, that God will keep us from harm. I've read this. Every year I go through this. I read this every year. Can I tell you something? It never promises that God will keep us from harm. There are passages that might seem to say that, but if you look at the context, that's not what it's saying, at least not in the way that we apply it. God never promises to keep us from harm. In fact, Jesus says exactly the opposite. There'll be a day that comes when there's no more harm. But in the meantime, there will be. Our reward, our inheritance, it comes at the end. And so any theology that promotes our best life now is anti-biblical, and keeps our heads in the cloud and keeps us off mission because our best life is yet to come. So why do bad things happen to God's people? Well, 
In one sense, we deal with the bad that everybody else deals with. But then again, the enemy has set his sights on us because we are gods and are working to affect his will in the world. And as we do so, our enemy stands against us. Here's the second question that this text raises for me, and I'm sure that some of us, if not all of us, have wrestled with. Why are some people delivered and others are not? Why is that person healed and that person's not? Why was that person killed but I wasn't? These are questions that people have raised throughout history and Christians as well. What do we see in our text? James, the son of Zebedee, James, the brother of of John the apostle, was murdered by the sword by Herod. And Peter was arrested, but Peter didn't go to his death. God delivered Peter, but God did not deliver James. Why? We see this in verses 5 through 12. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance, and suddenly an angel appeared. And we read this. The angel delivers them even from being chained in a cell, in a prison, guarded by 16 soldiers and probably other sentries all along the way. And God did not rescue James from the sword, but went through all of this to rescue Peter at this time. Again, why was Peter delivered, but James wasn't? I'm going to give you an answer that's largely unsatisfying, I know. Here's the answer. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say it, and we don't know. And you know what? It's okay that we don't know. Too often, I think, we try to give meaning to pain and loss. You know, we try to comfort others by telling them that God will come, uh, that good will come from this tragedy, or that, you know, God let this happen for a reason, just wait. Anybody who has ever suffered, believe me, those words are not helpful. And I know they come from people often who who want to help. They want to give some kind of encouragement, some kind of comfort, to give meaning to somebody so that they may be hurt a little less. But the truth of the matter is we shouldn't speak when we don't know the answer. And we don't know why some are rescued and some are not, why some are delivered and some are not. We just don't know. And it's often not helpful or comforting again to someone in pain. Now, it could be that God had a reason for keeping Peter around longer. It's possible. But remember that Peter did eventually die as a martyr, being crucified himself. So there was at least one time that God did not intervene to save. It could be that God had a reason in allowing James to die. But if he did, he didn't feel the need to disclose it in the scriptures to us. We have absolutely no idea. So what do we do in such situations? When we have questions such as this that we just don't have the answers to, why did God allow this to happen but didn't allow that to happen? Why? What do we do? We trust God. I'm sure that those who survived a church shooting wondered, why did that person die and I didn't? I'm sure missionaries in West Africa wondered, you know, why was my ministry partner kidnapped but I wasn't? We want answers, but that doesn't mean that we're entitled to answers. We want answers, but that doesn't mean that we would even find them satisfactory if we had them, or that we would even understand them if God gave us answers to some of these questions. We do just need to trust God in these times because we know him. 
We know his character. We know his nature. We know his goodness. We know his sovereignty. We know that he knows all things. And so we have to trust him in his, his goodness, his faithfulness, his love, and his promises to redeem in the end. And to remember that he has not taken anything away in this life because our inheritance, our promises, our rewards are coming for all of eternity and they'll never be taken away. Here's the third question from our text today. How should we address our doubts? And um, you don't have to like not make eye contact with me because I, I know something about you, ready? Here's a prophetic moment. You all have doubts. I'm gonna give you a moment of confession too. I do as well. You know what? Doubt is intrinsic to humanity. In fact, all your favorite Bible characters, all your heroes of old, everybody in history who stood for God, guess what they did too? We see Abraham doubting. We see Moses doubting. We see John the Baptist doubting. We see all the apostles doubting. Even when Jesus rose from the dead and appears to them, it doesn't dawn on them. Holy cow, what on earth am I seeing? He's really there? It takes them a moment. It takes them a lot of moments, let's be honest. We all deal with doubt. We, at times, we all wrestle with things. Uh, why? Because we are finite human beings. We don't have infinite knowledge. There's always an end to what we know, and that's the point where we want to know more, but our knowledge is limited. And so, of course, we're going to have questions that we don't have answers to, and we're going to have times of doubt. I mentioned John the Baptist. Man, if you, if you remember back to the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist, right? Fiery preacher, not afraid to tell the Pharisees, you know, what's, what's, what's up, and pronounces, here he is, right? When, when Jesus comes, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove at his baptism. And yet when Herod is in jail, at the end of his life, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? Because things, he's in prison. This is not what was supposed to happen. Wait a second. Maybe I was wrong. Did I get this right? Are you the one who is to come or are we supposed to wait for somebody else? All of us deal with doubts at different times. We see it in our text too, right? Verses 13 through 17. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She didn't doubt. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. Ah, they doubted. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. She was making up a, a, a reason why she heard what she heard. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. You know, somebody brought it up in Sunday school. We looked at this passage. They said they were just praying for Peter. And yet when God answered their prayer, they doubted it. They were not willing to accept the reality that God had answered the prayer they've been praying Everybody deals with doubts of different kinds. Of course, they knew that God could do miracles. They knew that God could deliver his people, but they've seen Christians killed. They've even seen an apostle killed, James, son of Zebedee. They've watched their friends imprisoned or worse over and over again. Peter was in jail. 
and they assumed the natural course would continue that he'd be put into prison, he'd be in prison until Herod killed him. We need to ask and expect that God could act to deliver his people. Let me make sure I say that again. We need to pray. Even though there's a chance God doesn't answer our prayer for deliverance, we need to pray and we need to expect that God can act in that moment. Does that mean he always will act according to how we want him to? No. But we need to trust that if it's according to his good will, him who knows all things, that he will. And we shouldn't be surprised when he does. But the evidence of Peter's deliverance was there. Rhoda heard him at the door, and yet the others didn't believe. They doubted. They even made excuses for what she, why she heard what she heard. Maybe it's his angel. And if you know anything about the theology of the time when it comes to angels, that didn't even make any sense. They were, they, were, they were grasping at straws to try to explain why she thought she heard Peter. So how should we address our doubts? We need to investigate them, right? We need to investigate them. If there's a question or objection that we can't answer, we need to seek the answer. Maybe we find it, maybe we don't. But there are a lot more answers than you think. So you don't have to just take it on faith. If there's a doubt, if it arises from a question or objection that you can't answer, seek the answer. Come talk to me. If something has happened and, and we have doubts about God, about his, his, his love, his ability to save, his justice, then we had better investigate the scriptures. If there's something that's, that we doubt because we're doubting something about the nature of God, then we need to remind ourselves who we're talking about. We need to go back to this book and see God's long track record of demonstrating his nature. We need to reflect back on the ways in which he's demonstrated his nature in our lives. We need to talk to our brothers and sisters in Christ about the many ways in which God has demonstrated his nature, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his providence in their lives as well. That's why the church is so important. We are a collective of stories of God's engagement with us to encourage one another, even in our times of doubt. In fact, for the sake of time, I won't read it, but I encourage you, bookmark Psalm 77. I'm going to summarize it for you here. So Psalm 77, he starts out, he's agonizing. He can't even sleep at night, the, the, the author of this, of this particular psalm. Things are so hard. He has no idea why these trials are coming, and they seem to be without end. He calls out to God, and he doesn't get an answer. God is not stopping the problem. God is not removing the hardship. God, have you turned a blind eye to me? What's going on? Have you stopped saving people? These are the questions. And then he stops. He has a moment. The light bulb goes off. He needs to reflect on God's character. In Psalm 77, that's what he does. He remembers back to the many ways in which God has demonstrated his love his faithfulness, his ability to save over and over and over again. And it gives him hope to endure the dark seasons that he was going through. Psalm 77, that's your homework assignment for tonight. Well, my last question is this. Why does it seem like evil people get away with it? Raise your hand if you've had an instance in your life where it seemed like somebody who did you harm got away with it. Raise your hand. And I'm sure the others of you probably just didn't have enough time to reflect back, but man, that just seems to happen a lot, right? Why do people just get away with it? 
Well, our last verses, 18 through 24. I love how it finishes off Herod's story. Because at the beginning, here is this tyrant who is trying to win the favor of a particular group of people. He's over at the expense of the Christians. He's, he's persecuting and murdering. And at the end, what happens to him? I love this verse. Ready? Hold on. Uh, oh, I lost my pen. There it is. Okay. He was eaten by worms and died. I'm sorry. There's sometimes that the Bible gives some description, probably more description than it needs, but it's fun to me. I'm sorry. Uh, if ever there was a man who seemed to deserve to be eaten by worms and died, it seems to be Herod Agrippa here after he was murdering apostles. What's wrong with him? Right? We, God will bring justice. Now, here's the truth of the matter. Justice doesn't always come this side of eternity. We all know people, criminals, who got away with murder and lived and died at old, at old age. Okay. Doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it does. But they will stand before the Lord. You know, it often seems like evil people get away with evil actions, but it really isn't so, because getting away with it implies that they've not been caught and that they will not be held accountable for their crimes. But they did get caught because God knows all things. God sees all things. There's not a single thing that we've done against him or somebody else that escapes God's knowledge. He knows it all. They have been busted. They have been caught. And they will be held accountable for their actions, even if not in this life, certainly in the life to come. So here's some concluding thoughts, friends. Evil exists, but it's temporary. It's a symptom of our fallen world. It's a symptom of this war that we're in, God's kingdom versus the kingdom of this world. And one day, evil of all kinds will be gone for good. The evil that's done to us, the evil we do to ourselves, the evil we do to others, all of it will be gone. The only reason God hasn't pulled the curtain yet is because he wants to make sure that all of those who would be redeemed are redeemed. This is why Jesus came. He died to atone for sins so that evil people could have an opportunity to repent and turn to him and receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God. The only reason he hasn't come back yet is because more people will do just that. In fact, 2 Peter 3.9 says it, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It doesn't mean that everybody will, but everybody who will will have the opportunity to. God will pull the curtain at the appropriate time. So we cannot be crippled by fear, despite what may come, and we must still boldly proclaim the gospel, not yielding to the forces that try to silence us from doing so. And life might be hard as a result. In fact, we might even lose our lives. But guess what? We will be raised again and live forever and all of God's promises will continue to be true for us forever, despite what may happen in this life.